I'm Mike Hall. I'm Jim Harris. I'm the fanboy. I'm the hater. Well, sometimes I'm the fanboy. And I'm the hater. But sometimes we're both. Fanboy and hater. You know what this podcast needs? An An origin story! Alright people, let's start at the beginning one last time. Often, as we're watching anything, we tend to talk about it afterwards, as most people do, and oftentimes I fanboyed over it. And I hated on it. Flash forward a few months ago, I get a text from Jim. Let's start a podcast and call it Fanboy and the Hater. And I said, let's do this. It's the Fanboy and the Hater. One who loves joy and one like Vader. One loves pop culture. One thinks it's torture. They both think they're right, so let's hear them fight. Reviewing movies and what's on TV. It's the Fanboy and the Hater. Hey, I like that. It was pretty catchy. I hated it. The timing was off and it was out of tune. Welcome to Fanboy and the Hater, a podcast about the best and worst in movies, TV, and pop culture. Hosted and produced by Mike Hall and Jim Harris. Edited by Jim Harris. And music by Mike Hall. Welcome to the first episode of Fanboy and the Hater. Well, we explain our approach to this podcast, the type of content we think we're going to create, and some other information you probably should know before you start listening to the show. So first off, let's talk a little bit about what we mean and what we don't mean by hater. Yes. This is a a relatively lighthearted podcast, so we don't want people to get the wrong impression when you see the word hater in the title of our podcast. Oftentimes, we don't actually hate what we're talking about. We just kind of like to nitpick and and look at the little things, and it's just easier to call it hating on it than it is to just say we're nitpicking on it. Yeah, we're expressing strong negative opinions about a movie, a TV show, or some aspect of pop culture. We're not actually trying to attack a person, and especially when we get involved in online discussions. It's okay to dislike something or to disagree with people. It's even okay to have an argument over something. We just want to make sure that we never devolve down into any type of a personal attack. We're trying to discourage someone from getting involved in the conversation or disrespecting someone for having a view that's different than us. That's definitely not what we mean by hater. Right. But uh, we decided to keep fanboy and the hater because it just sounds better than fanboy and the nitpicker. Yes. Fanboy and the nitpicker would be a really bad name for a podcast. Yes, it would. Although I guess I'm kind of nitpicking. We interrupt this podcast for the following important message. Hey, this is Jim, the co-host who most often plays the role of hater on this podcast. I wanted to point out that there's a big difference between being a hater and being a dick. And it largely comes down to the difference between hating on something versus hating on someone. If you're hating on something about movies, TV, or pop culture because you dislike it, or as more often the case with me, you simply wish it had been done better, then you're a hater, and that's okay. However, if you're hating on someone because of an opinion that they expressed about movies, TV, or pop culture that you disagree with, or they shared a negative review of a movie or TV show that you love, especially if your response turns into a personal attack or bullying, 
on the basis of something like race, ethnicity, nationality, sexual orientation, or gender identity, then you're not a hater. You're just a dick. Bottom line, it's okay to be a hater. Don't be a dick. So say we all. So say we all. And now, back to the show. So we thought for our first episode, when we talk about our origin story, we would talk about our origins. What gave us our opinions? Who do we connect with in pop culture as we go forward? Do you want to go ahead and start us off with that, Jim? Certainly. We each chose, well, kind of chose three fictional characters to help explain our origin to the perspective that we have when we approach movies, TV, and pop culture. So we'll go back and forth one at a time, because the first ones will actually be rather telling. (laughs) For me, my first one is Luke Skywalker. And the reason for this is when the original Star Wars trilogy came out, it came out in 1977, 1980, and 1983, I was all of 12 years old by the time that trilogy completed. So Star Wars, the original, A New Hope as it's now called, was actually the first movie that I ever saw in a movie theater. And I immediately identified with Luke Skywalker because I wasn't as cool as Han Solo. Although I was probably as dorky as C-3PO, I wanted to identify with a human character. And Luke Skywalker really was the character that I related to, someone who didn't quite fit in with his family and longed to do something more than what he was currently doing. A little bit naive, not really sure what the wider world looked like, but it was that character and Star Wars in general that pulled me into a lifelong love of space-based science fiction. If only Jar Jar existed when you were a child. Try not to (laughs) yell. So my first nerd experience was also pretty much Star Wars. When I was very, very young, probably three or four, I grew up watching Star Wars. It was the only movie I ever watched for most of my childhood because we didn't really watch movies. But I always really connected with Darth Vader. I saw Luke. He was a good guy. He was trying, but he was sloppy and whatnot. Vader was dark and powerful, mysterious, feared, larger than life. Everything that I wanted to be minus, you know, the evil part. And I didn't really want to be evil. <laughs> but otherwise, Vader was everything I, I loved. And, I mean, that probably shaped me quite a bit. Uh, I've always been into dark things. Also in the 70s, when I was watching the first Star Wars movie, I also started watching Battlestar Galactica, the original series, which came out in 1978. I also started watching reruns of Star Trek, and also some of the first Star Trek original movies also came out in the early 80s. And I basically started watching anything that was space-based science fiction that was on television or in a movie. I watched it, and I credit Star Wars and Luke Skywalker for setting me down that path. Growing up, I loved Star Wars so much that my parents actually got me. I don't know how I got it, but I had a book about Star Wars that was... I believe it was Return of the Jedi, and I also had a cassette tape of the movie. So I would read the book and listen to the cassette tape over and over because they had the TV and didn't want to sit there and watch it with me for the (laughs) 5,000th time. Yeah, if you can imagine me obsessing over something and doing it over and over and over and over. I can't imagine that at all. (laughs) (laughs) Who's next on your list? Well, the second one on my list is actually Peter Parker. 
Yes, he does become Spider-Man. And just like Luke Skywalker in Star Wars started me in space-based science fiction, Spider-Man was pretty much my only comic book attraction as a kid, and also the cartoon series that I started to watch. Even though Batman and Superman were around, I remember Adam West and Burt Ward as the Batman and Robin show, which was before I was born, but still reruns were on TV. I remember the old 1950s Superman show that was in reruns. I also remember the Christopher Reeves Superman movies. But the superhero that really connected with most with me was Peter Parker, because he was a nerdy kid who loved science and got bullied a lot until he got bitten by a radioactive spider and got turned into a superhero. I'm sensing a theme here. You're sensing a theme, yes. So it was about the only comic book that I collected, somewhat collected on a regular basis. I wasn't a huge comic book kid, but I did collect a small number of Spider-Man comics. And it was one of my favorite cartoon series. My grandmother used to have to babysit me while my parents worked. And I made my grandmother watch the original Spider-Man cartoon series with me. And then I also, as I got older in the 80s, Spider-Man and his Amazing Friends, which was an X-Men crossover with Iceman and Firestar, which got me into a slightly wider world, which also included the X-Men. But nowadays, when we, the, the great era of superhero movies and comic book heroes coming to film and TV, it all traces back to me to Peter Parker and Spider-Man, which is why if you ever ask me what my favorite superhero movies are, they're often going to include uh, at the top of that list Spider-Man, because for me, that's how I got into comics and superheroes. Well, that's a good segue into my next one. As I grew up and you know became nerdy, I started getting into comic books. And as a lot of people into comic books in the late 80s, early 90s, I really connected with Wolverine. I think most people, they really connected with Wolverine because of his attitude. They really liked the claws and the indestructibleness and everything. I connected with Wolverine because I was also a short guy with anger management issues. Wolverine, through the stories that I read, he kind of taught me, you read between the lines, you can see that you can, you can be really tough while still being short. And you can also control your anger. Uh, he really taught me how to not blow up over little things that don't really matter. It took me a long time to figure that out. But reading between the lines and reading Wolverine stories, you can see how little things really aggravated him. But he didn't do anything about it. He just kind of let it slide off. And, you know, he would just go blow off some steam somewhere else rather than blowing up on the person doing it. And that really affected me, again, being a short guy with anger management issues. I probably smelled really funny and talked funny as well, like he does, but I wasn't quite as hairy at the time, you know, being eight, nine years old. <laughs> it's funny, the, the first time I think I ever saw Wolverine was actually in a Spider-Man cartoon, which also reminded me of one of the reasons I liked Spider-Man was because he often would react to angry, aggressive characters with humor first. And actually, that was one of the other things I loved about Peter Parker and Spider-Man was that that sense of humor and that quippy type action. So there was actually, I don't even remember the context of it, but for some reason, Wolverine wanted to fight Spider-Man and Spider-Man was more interested in joking with Wolverine. Well, in the books, they actually have that dynamic. They're friends that kind of hate each other. <laughs> and it's really funny. I, I love their dynamic together in the books. Again, my era was the X-Men animated series. <laughs> I love that series. That was a great series. I recently bought it on DVD, 
and started watching it again and realized, oh, they really Wolverine was awesome when I was a kid on that show, but man, they really PG thirteened it. Well, now that I know you have that on DVD, we're going to have to watch that again. Sounds good to me. Because one of the things that I found interesting about my introduction to the X-Men was through Spider-Man. And it was in Spider-Man and His Amazing Friends. And it was interesting because Spider-Man, because he was friends with Iceman and Firestar, would go help out the X-Men. But mm-hmm. Professor X had to keep telling Spider-Man, it's like, you can't be an X-Man because you're not a mutant. Yeah, yeah. So initially, I didn't like the X-Men. Because they wouldn't let Spider-Man in their club. You know, that's actually almost funny. If you're familiar with the X-Men and why they came up with the X-Men, the fact that he was excluded. (laughs) But they did allow him to go with them on missions and stuff like that. Not like they were saying, no, you can't be part of us because you're different. It was saying they were saying this is only for this group of people that are being shunned. You're not being shunned for being a mutant. Therefore, you can't really be part of this, but we're still willing to work with you. Right. And in that show, he was friends with Iceman and Firestar who were X-Men. Right. And they did adventures apart from the X-Men, but they also did some adventures with the X-Men. It was a bit of a crossover for the other show that was going on or coming Mm -hmm. uh, on around the same time. So, yeah, it was interesting to see that dynamic. But, yeah, the X-Men were were very popular for me. But, again, I I, I always laugh because I always think about that. My, I initially, probably for the first few years, did not like the X-Men on principle <laughs> because they would not let Spider-Man join. Well, I think it's really funny uh, talking about the animated series is people around my age that love that X-Men cartoon, the two live action attempts at Dark Phoenix. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's making a pain face there. Not making a happy face. And nobody does when talking about those two movies. And what what becomes funny about us is like, they did it so well in the animated series. There are so many storylines that were done so well in the animated series, and it baffles me as to why they couldn't simply have done one of those stories in the movies, and it would have been awesome. Because it was already done. But people hadn't seen it in live action. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll 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 come back to that. We'll definitely come back to that because the the Jean Grey Phoenix thing was actually one of my one of the storylines in the X Men that I found the most interesting. And I yeah I've been very disappointed at their attempts to do that in live action. Everybody's disappointed in their attempts to do it live action. It kind of makes sense for us to ask the the backup and ask the question: Do you like the way everyone now equates Hugh Jackman with Wolverine? Do you like the way Wolverine has been portrayed as a live-action character? It's a little bit easier for you because basically he's the only, am I right? He's the only actor to portray him as a live-action character? Yeah. So for you, it's easier. For me, I have three different, at least live-action people, not counting a really bad live-action television series in the (laughs) 1980s that will pretend didn't happen. So from movie perspective, there have been three different actors, but how have you felt about Hugh Jackman playing your beloved Wolverine? Oh, man, that's tough. So, he does a very good job with what he does, if that makes sense. The growly voice and stuff like that, he does that really, really well. He kind of portrays the anger and the attitude about as well as you probably can without overacting it. The issues for, especially for me, who I connected with Wolverine because he was a short guy, and now you've got somebody that's over six foot tall playing Wolverine... That really got to me, and that continues to get to me. It's hard to set that aside a little bit. One of the ongoing things was a lot of his his rogues gallery, they call him Runt. Kind of hard to do that with Hugh Jackman playing him. 
in the movies, he, he talks a lot more than I think he should. He's not quite as angry. And the Wolverine that I know and that I love, he doesn't do happy moments. He's always a horse hair away from just blowing up and killing everybody. They do his Berserker Rage pretty well, I think. But yeah, there's a lot of little things that I think they could do, and I hope they do moving forward when they replace him. Well, it's always been weird to me because he's crossed over so many different movies where other characters in the X-Men universe have been played by other actors. Mm -hmm. It makes you almost wonder, I'm not saying that we needed to replace him, but it might have been interesting to see at least a few of those Wolverine stories with someone else. I don't know what actor, do you think there is an actor? Yes. What actor do you think should play him? Tom Hardy. Ooh. How tall is Tom Hardy? Isn't he tall too? Not as tall. Not as tall. But he also has the build that it could be very easily with camera tricks and stuff, make him look a little bit shorter than he is. And he's good enough of an actor. I mean, it's almost typecasting at that point because he plays that broody, angry, monosyllabic. I think he'd play it really, really well, except for that he's already Venom. It's hard to judge because some of the X-Men movies have also been the weird time travel type thing. First class and then putting them before as sort of the prequels of the original X-Men and then they retconned the whole thing. And so, yeah, it would it made, I guess, more sense to keep Wolverine continue to be portrayed by Hugh Jackman. But we've gotten a few different like tried to do his origin story. They've tried to do his death story. Maybe could they have been done better by a different actor? I don't know. Well, uh, he was fantastic in Logan. Logan was awesome. That was an amazing movie. It's a different death story than the comic book death story, but I'm fine with that. That movie was fantastic. We're not really going to talk about the other ones. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, for me, uh, Spider-Man was harder in some respects because it it has been portrayed by three different actors. Mm -hmm. And until Tom Holland, we haven't really had someone who was close to an age-appropriate casting. Uh, yeah. For at least for the Peter Parker in still in high school type of thing, as well as someone who seemed to embody the personality that I expect from Spider-Man in terms of the, the quippiness and the geekiness. I think Tom Holland has probably come the closest of the three that have played him. Although I still stand by Tobey Maguire's Spider-Man 2 as one of my all-time favorite live-action superhero movies. Rank your Spider-Man. I'd have to go Tobey Maguire. Tom Hollins and Andrew Garfield. Sorry, Andrew, but you are definitely last. <laughs> there were aspects of those two movies that I could enjoy, but by and large, I did not like the casting of, of Andrew Garfield in, in the Amazing Spider-Man movies. Tobey Maguire, I thought, did a pretty good job as adult Spider-Man. He didn't do a great job as young Peter Parker. Tom Holland, I think, has done pretty good on both, although still, for the movies he's made so far, he's still in high school. So we haven't seen the older Peter Parker. Not that I think he would, I don't know if I would like him if he was in live action, but Jake Johnston, who voiced Peter Parker, one of the Peter Parkers in Into the Spider-Verse, I thought he did a fantastic job with the character as the older sort of alternate universe Peter. The one that died? Uh, No, the one that didn't die, the fat one. Oh, the schlubby one. (laughs) Yes, fatty, schlubby Spider-Man, which actually does have some basis in the comic books. Sticking to this live action, it's definitely Tobey Maguire barely above Tom Holland and definitely Andrew Garfield last. Yeah, I kind of argue with you a little bit on that. Really? What do you think? Uh, I think absolutely for sure Tom Holland is the number one. Not even the slightest doubt in my mind. I think Tobey Maguire did a very good Peter Parker. Terrible Spider-Man. 
I think Andrew Garfield did a fantastic Spider-Man, terrible Peter Parker. The issue was both of them, their personalities are the same as Peter Parker and as and as Spider-Man. Whereas in the books, they're very, very different. Once he puts on that mask, he becomes somebody else. And I think Tom Holland does that. I have to admit, I didn't particularly like either of those two movies. So those are the two Spider-Man movies that I've seen the least. I really do want to go back and rewatch uh, both of those movies. Amazing Spider-Man? Amazing Spider-Man and Amazing Spider-Man 2. Because I liked Tommy McGuire in the first two that he did. The third one has lots of problems. But again, the, the second Spider-Man movie, because it was my favorite Spider-Man movie, is probably why I put... Because in terms of Spider-Man movies, I go Spider-Man 2, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, which I know is kind of cheating because it's not live action. It's one of the best movies ever made, and I, I have it as my second by a very small margin behind Spider-Man 2. And then Homecoming is my third favorite mm-hmm. Spider-Man movie. Which is, again, why I kind of have Tom Holland below Tobey Maguire. Yeah, I think uh, Andrew Garfield in uh, Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2, the way he portrayed Spider-Man, is his quips, how funny he was, how cool he was, I think that is absolutely perfect for Spider-Man. But then when he was playing Peter Parker, he still did the same stuff. He was the cool guy. And that's not Peter Parker. Peter Parker was never the cool guy. Yes, that's correct. So that aspect was also troubled me as well. Your third and final origin character is probably the one that many people will not know who I'm talking about. My third character is Howling Mad Murdoch. I actually love this character. And this is from, some people might actually only be familiar with the movie that they made, the remake that they made, but this is from the A-Team. The A-Team came out in 1983. Again, I guess some, uh, somewhat of a formative year for me because, again, that was the final, the year that The Return of the Jedi was released, the final of the three original Star Wars movies. It was also the year that the A-Team debuted as a television show. So I won't go into the whole thing about the A-Team, but <laughs> Holly Mad Murdoch was the character on that show that I identified, again, for a somewhat similar reason. I couldn't identify with the other characters. In fact, my group of friends at the time, we all watched the television show. The bossy friend of ours identified with Hannibal, who was the leader. Our strong friend, who we used to hide behind if we ever got in a fight, was the person we identified with as B.A. Baracus. A uh, bit of the fool! Exactly. Dead meat! So that was the guy that uh, our strong friend identified with. Our good-looking friend was the face man. So that left for me, which I was perfectly fine with this, that left for me Howling Mad Murdoch. The pilot, the technical expert, the guy who was had a near-genius-level IQ, but was also completely nuts. So he was, in part, it was a comedic show, a semi-serious show. We would call it a dramedy nowadays. But he was, in part, the comic relief of the episode. He was a character that helped me connect with the importance of laughter, because he was often a very silly character, and he was at the heart of some very silly comic relief. So I identified with him as another outcast character, but also a character that reminded me of the importance of laughter. As an adult, I don't watch as many comedies as I used to, with the exception of maybe sitcoms. I'll pretty much watch anything that's a sitcom. But Holly Mad Murdoch really uh, helped me remember the importance of laughter, especially going into high school, which was not a, a great time for me. So having a character that kind of went into high school with me in terms of the years that the show was on TV helped me remind me of that. And then the other thing that was really awesome for me 
is the actor Dwight Schultz, who played Howley Mad Murdock on the TV show, also appeared in Star Trek The Next Generation, when Star Trek rebooted as a television series in the late 80s. <laughs> Mike is not a Star Trek fan. He is a Star Wars fan. That's a whole other episode. <laughs> but Dwight Schultz, who played Howley Mad Murdock, had a small recurring role as Lieutenant Barkley on Star Trek The Next Generation. I was like, hey, that's the actor I like. And he played a similar, really smart, but kind of klutzy, kind of goofy, silly comic relief type character in an otherwise very serious show, which helped me get me pulled into that reboot of the Star Trek franchise. It's kind of like Star Jar. No! <laughs> he is not like Jar Jar. The goofy comic relief in an otherwise serious movie. I don't know what you're, what you're talking about. So I actually really like that character. I, I grew up watching A-Team as well. It was one of the few shows that my dad watched that I liked. So I grew up watching it as well, and I really liked Murdoch. And what I actually always found very interesting about Murdoch was he was obviously crazy to everybody, but they they made a few episodes where he went serious, and it showed that his craziness was a ploy. He used that he was an actor that would use that craziness as a way to get done what he needed to get done. And I loved that about that. I even caught on to that as a kid where most people are like, oh, he's the crazy guy. Even as a little kid, I was like, he's playing a crazy guy. Yeah, because in the show, he, his character was also a talented actor. Mm-hmm. So there were a few episodes where not only did he have to do crazy things, he also needed someone to act these bizarre characters. And he was able to do that because he was very much play acting at being crazy and he was very talented at doing it. And he would do it in a way so that everybody knew he was crazy. So then instead of going to prison when they got caught, he would go to a madhouse, which is a little bit easier to escape. Yes, pretty much the the beginning of every A-Team episode, they break Howley Mad Murdock out of a mental asylum. (laughs) And then at the end of the episode, they check him back in. So that was kind of the recurring gag on almost every single A-Team episode. I love that show. I connected more with, with B.A. most of the time myself. Again, being a, a guy that wanted to be strong, I loved B.A., but very close to that was Murdoch for me. So, who's your third character? I'm using air quotes. Yeah, I cheated. I went actually, I, I started thinking about it, and I went through a couple characters, and I decided actually, I just wanted to say pop culture in general for my origin story. Really, the the big thing is just because pop culture shaped my life so much. I don't really talk about it. I've maybe two or three people have ever said anything about this too. But I've often throughout my life struggled very deeply with like depression and anxiety and everything. And having pop culture as a way to escape real life and go to another world where anything is possible, be video games, comic books, movies, music. Anything like that is a way that I can just move to another realm where real life issues do not exist anymore. It helps me escape and then come back refreshed. So it has really helped me with that. So I kind of cheated. If you want to make fun of me a little bit, I will say that the character I was about to say before I went this way was Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. I was more of a Screech fan myself. <laughs> but no, I, I won't give you too much crap for going with pop culture in general. I think it's actually an excellent point because I also have at various times throughout my life and to a certain extent also currently struggle with depression as well. 
Many times throughout my life, I did not have many friends, and my television, which I managed to convince my parents that I should have a color television in my bedroom because I had a computer and it could double as a computer monitor, and hey, we have cable, so why don't we just connect my color television to cable? So even in the times where I had very few friends, I turned to television and movies, and it was an escape, like I said, whether it would be to a galaxy far, far away. Or it would be to some bizarre uh, comedy or something funny like the A-Team or something, again, imaginative like uh, animation and something like that. It definitely was a, a welcome break from the real world, and it definitely helped me get through some difficult times. So not yeah. going to give you any, any hard time about that. Pop culture in general and a lot of the shows that we end up talking about on this podcast have played an important role in our lives, and we do appreciate that. Yeah, very similar. I uh, Slightly different was I also did not have a lot of friends growing up and I escaped into TV quite often. I would hyper focus into the TV. But really, for me, I didn't have a lot of friends simply because I didn't care or want them. I w I've always been more of a loner. I've always liked to stay alone. I know people kind of make fun of me because I don't leave my house. As a matter of fact, you have to come here to my house to do this <laughs> podcast. Well, in fairness, you do have the better setup for podcasting. <laughs> but like even talking to my mom, you know, about when I was a little kid and I was like, you know, how come I didn't do this or how come I didn't have that? And she's like, because you didn't want it. You would just go to your room and play quietly by yourself in your room and we would try to get you to do other things. And you're like, no, I'm good. And that's me as like a four-year-old, you know, when most four-year-olds are, they constantly want attention. Not me. I was in my room doing my own thing. Grade school, especially, you know, I was friends with the popular kids, but then I never did anything with them because I wanted to do my own thing. I had my own interests, which usually went into a nerdy realm. Uh, I know my cousin still gives me crap about how often she heard me yell, I have the power! <laughs> I watched He-Man so much all the time and then really dove into Ninja Turtles. My mom knows more about Ninja Turtles than she would ever care to know because I would never shut up about Ninja Turtles. All that stuff, that became my world. And it helped. It helped with everything. It kept me happy. It always, and continues to keep me happy. It always, when, no matter what else is going on, it's a place that I can go and be happy. Don't worry. Be happy. Obviously, that was a sample of the great Bobby McFerrin song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. It's also an example of one of the editing techniques that I use on our podcast, and that is to give you an audio cue when we're transitioning to another segment or pivoting to another part of our discussion. Most often, the sound that you will hear to let you know that we're doing that is this sound. And that's Mike playing the bass line of our theme song. In this case, it's going to be used to introduce the following clip, which helps to explain the repeated attempts at a Jar Jar Binks joke in our previous discussion, which is also a good example of how we don't take ourselves too seriously on this podcast. So, Jim, <laughs> what, what are your feelings on Jar Jar? I do not like Jar Jar. You do not like Jar Jar because he's flaily and klutzy. 
Are you trying to? Okay, I see where we're going here. Yes, yes. I'm like Jar Jar Binks. I'm self-loathing. I don't like Jar Jar because he's clumsy and he's goofy and he has a weird voice. Yeah. I'm self-hating. You're, you're forgetting the flailing. And the flailing. You can't see me because it's not a video, but I talk with my arms flailing a lot. If you ever see uh, Conan O'Brien's impression of Bernie Sanders, <laughs> that is basically Jim most of the time he talks. <laughs> So another thing, diving into pop culture, what that's always done for me is I'm also a very analytical person. I always like to figure out how things are done and why they're done that way. So it has also really kind of pulled me into appreciating the art of making these things. And and part of that art to me is they're developing and designing and writing everything so that you figure it out as the movie goes along, which kind of leads into why big movies that I'm excited for. I absolutely hate spoilers to the point that I don't even like to watch previews. I, I don't look at synopsis. I don't, I don't want to know anything about that movie. So, for instance, Star Wars Episode Nine coming up, I already know more than I want to know because I saw the teaser trailer. And you normally don't want to see trailers. I don't want to see trailers. For, like, for anything? If it's something I'm not excited about, sure, I want to see a trailer because that's what's going to get me into it. But for the Marvel Cinematic Universe, even the DC Universe, Star Wars Universe, anything like that that I, I know the lore I'm excited for, I don't want to see the spoilers because I want to enjoy it the way it was intended by the artist. And by artist, I mean the directors and writers and, and everything. They're going to lay it out in a way, and I want to see it in that way. I, I don't want to already know, you know, when you're watching a movie and you've seen the, the trailers, like, oh, hey, this is going to be that part where this happens. I don't want to know. I want it to be, I want it to be a surprise. I, I want to experience it the first time the way that the director intended me to experience it as a piece of art. And that kind of goes well into, for the things that we review, we obviously watch them multiple times. The first time that you watch something, you're really applying that mentality or that philosophy. You just want to sit back there, try to turn off your critical mind and just experience it as art, like you said. Yeah. And then maybe like the second time through, then now that you know what's going to happen, then you start looking to see where yeah. things might connect the dots. I'm sometimes the opposite. Like a good example of this was our experience with the last season of Game of Thrones. We watched Game of Thrones here at Mike's house because at that time, he was the only one with a HBO subscription. And I won't leave my house. And he won't leave his house, as we previously established. Game of Thrones would come out with a new episode on Sunday night. We would get together as a group and watch it on Tuesday night. In between that, you would often watch it like on Monday, right? Before we came over? Yeah, usually I'd watch it like Monday morning or something. Because you were always concerned that, because blog posts started lighting up right. as, so as soon as the last... The credits rolled on the episode Sunday night, blog posts hit the internet, and you didn't want to risk getting anything spoiled. Yeah, that's 90%. 10% is I don't like distractions. Ah, So okay. it's often like Endgame comes out or something like that, and people are like, hey, let's all go together. And I go, I'll go to it by myself, and then go to it a second time when you guys go, because I don't like the distractions being around. I want to just focus in and absorb myself into that world. So the second time when we watched Game of Thrones with you on Tuesday nights, you knew what was going to happen. So you could then do that, look at it a bit more critically and try mm -hmm. to... For me, I actually did read the blog post 
Sunday night right after the episode had finished airing. And I read the entire thing and everything I could get my hands on. I wanted it to be spoiled so that when I sat down and watched it, actually watched it for the first time, because I knew what was going to happen, I could pay attention to things and see if they set up the things that were going to happen or not. So for me, well, I can't say it increased my enjoyment of Game of Thrones final season because I did not like the Game of Thrones final season. But I do that with a lot of other shows as well, sometimes with even movies. I actually did it in part with Avengers Endgame. I knew a lot about what was going to happen in that movie, and I did not think that it any in any way... I didn't spoil it for other people. I kept it to myself. But it did not spoil in any way my enjoyment you of that You wanted movie. to. I wanted to so, so much! But <laughs> I did not. Now, that all of this probably seems a little bit weird, because we're doing a podcast in which many times we will be including spoilers in the things that we talk about. We will warn people ahead of time, but as a general rule of thumb, you're probably not going to get spoiled by listening to our show, because if it's a movie that's still in the theater, for example, at least for me, I think this is also true for Mike, I can't do like a detailed, a good detailed review after having only watched something once. I need to watch it at least a second time. And I don't want to do that necessarily with movies that are still in the theater. Uh, so for something like that, or maybe a new streaming series uh, on one of the uh, channels where the entire season comes out all at once, and you can go binge watch it if you want, when something like that happens, we'll do what we call a spoiler-free first impression, where we will have a short segment or a short episode focused on that movie or new season of a TV series, and we will intentionally stay away from spoilers and may or may not, depending on, on how we liked it, go and do a detailed deep dive review at a later time. Just to give you an example of what one of those would sound like, here's a clip from a spoiler-free first impression of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I'm Rick Dalton. I'm a stunt double Cliff Booth. Seems this world got you down. What's the matter, partner? official old buddy and well, has been uh, August night and the leaves hanging down and the grass on the ground here I am flat on my ass and who, who I got living next door to me I'm Sharon Tate I'm in the movie Probably's gonna dig you in this town I can all change like that I recently saw Quentin Tarantino's latest movie Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which was released here in the United States in July 2019. Generally speaking, I am not a fan of Quentin Tarantino's style of filmmaking. I find it to be overindulgent and under-edited. Most of his films are longer than their story requires and includes a lot of material that doesn't really add a lot of value to the overall story and can often be removed, and what would be left behind would be just as good, if not a better film. Even some of the best scenes in his movies sometimes stretch on a little bit longer than they should, as if they're trying to squeeze every last drop of dramatic excellence out of the scene and its performances. Then that squeeze often makes the juice bitter in my mouth. 
meaning it reduces the overall power of the scene and performances for me, and I think also reduces the overall quality of the film. And everything I just said about Quentin Tarantino's style of filmmaking in general applies specifically to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. This movie clocks in at 2 hours and 45 minutes. The movie is a tribute to the final moments of Hollywood's golden age. However, if you're not familiar with the actress Sharon Tate and the tragic events that befell her on August 9th, 1969, then I would recommend that before seeing this movie, and it won't ruin or spoil anything for you, but before seeing this movie, at least look up on Google or Wikipedia who Sharon Tate is and what happened to her on August 9th, 1969. Because that historic event is the axis upon which this entire movie revolves around. This movie opens six months before that real historic event and ends on that very date. Because if you go into this movie, like I did, with little to no knowledge of that, then you will often be confused why, in a movie with a very large ensemble cast, why there are so many scenes that tend to linger on Sharon Tate and the people around her. The end of the movie ties everything together and does make sense, but I think it really helps to know a little bit about that historical backdrop going into the movie. The ending of this movie is wildly entertaining. I'm not going to spoil any aspect of it for you. It is an incredibly fantastic ending, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. However, like most Quentin Tarantino movies, I had to go on a very long, sometimes weird, and occasionally boring ride to get there, which made the payoff almost not worth the wait or the ticket price. At least for me, as of August 19th, 2019, the film does have an 85% score on Rotten Tomatoes, with a 70% audience score. It's 84% on Metacritic, with a 7.5 out of 10 score from users, and it's 8.2 out of 10 on IMDb. So by and large, a lot of critics and viewers did really enjoy seeing this movie. It has a great soundtrack and an excellent ensemble cast, led by Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt, who are the primary stars of the movie, and they both deliver excellent performances. Margot Robbie was great as Sharon Tate, and one of my favorite performances was actually from Julia Butters, a child actress who really was a scene-stealing delight in her scenes with Leonardo DiCaprio. I enjoy Quentin Tarantino's movies best when I can watch them on Blu-ray or DVD, and that's because I really need a remote control to help me get through most of his movies. Pause, stop, and fast forward are my friends, which is why we probably won't do our detailed review of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood until after the movie has come out on DVD and Blu-ray. Until then, I hope you have enjoyed this spoiler-free first impression. Like lots of film and, and TV podcasts, a significant core piece of our content is going to be reviewing stuff. 
And we're going to take different approaches based on what we're reviewing. One of them, which you'll actually see an example of in our next episode, is a detailed review of Solo, a Star Wars story, where we actually do literally go through like scene by scene and dissect everything and argue over what we liked and what we didn't like. That's where I like to shine. I like going scene by scene. I like picking it apart. And kind of going back to what I was saying, that, that first time I like to see it from the director's perspective, you know, the way the director intended. Second time I like to look for the plot and the foreshadowing and stuff and how they set it up. I'm like, okay, that's how they made it and why they made it that way. Then from there on, I start nitpicking. And, and that's where I kind of go in. So if I can see, you know, as you'll see as we go through the solo uh, Star Wars story, there's a lot of things that I absolutely loved on that you hated on. And the reason for that is I think I figured out why they did it that way. And then once that makes sense, I can enjoy it for what it is. And sometimes in those reviews, you'll hear me get a little frustrated and Mike get frustrated at me because I hate going scene by scene because I always want to jump ahead and say, yeah, but this other thing happens later in the movie and it connects or doesn't connect to the thing we're talking about right now. And Mike's like, no, you're getting ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll probably jump back and forth. There'll, there'll be some that we go really detailed and scene by scene. And there's some where we'll just talk about, hey, how did we feel? What did we think? What was the overall impression? It's all going to probably depend on how often we've seen the movie, how familiar we are with it, and what it means to us personally. And sometimes we may actually do um, a group of movies together, like something like all the Spider-Man movies. We might do an overview of each one, or we might do an individual episode on each one. It depends. There also might be things that we'll do that with, instead of breaking down every episode of a TV series, we might just talk about the entire season at a higher level and talk about the highlights and lowlights of that season, as opposed to trying to go down into a deep dive. Uh, occasionally, also, we'll try to have a more roundtable discussion where we'll invite guests on the show to help us talk about something. One example of that that we'll have a couple episodes from now is we actually have our thoughts about what we think is going to happen in The Rise of Skywalker, which obviously will be completely spoiler-free. It'll be complete speculation, but that will be an example of, of another way that we may approach doing a review of something. Uh, another thing we, that we may do, we've been talking about a little bit, is maybe looking at specific characters. For instance, uh, a little bit of foreshadowing here, or just blatantly telling you, <laughs> the Joker. We, find, we both find the Joker to be a very interesting character, and so we're probably going to go into a deep character dive where we talk about the different iterations of the character and what they mean, what the, the good points, the bad points, what that character means to pop culture, what it means to us. Yeah, for me, I mean, I love the Batman movies for their action sequences and other things that they entail. But sometimes in the Batman movies where Joker is a character, and, and this is either in a live action or a animated series, sometimes my favorite scenes are the actual dialogue and back and forth, like confrontational conversation between Batman and the Joker is almost as interesting or more interesting to me than the actual action scenes. Like, I love The Dark Knight, and I love Heath Ledger as the Joker, and I know there's lots of great action sequences in that movie. One of my favorite scenes in the is the interrogation room scene, where it says Joker and, and Batman pretty much just having an, an argument. Yeah. Kind, of, kind of a little bit of a fight, but mostly an argument. Don't start with the head. <laughs> the victim gets all fuzzy. <laughs> And just how brilliantly acted that scene is, 
Because the Joker, for me, is much more of a psychological character. He's not a go-toe-to-toe and physically fight Batman. Not that that doesn't happen, but he's a great psychological opponent. So that might be an example of a, of a character that we dive into across movies. A little bit of nerd trivia for you. Uh-oh! So, in Batman the Animated Series, you said you, that you really like the dialogue back and forth between Batman and Joker. Do you know why that dialogue came across that way? No. It is pretty much the only animated series like that where the voice actors actually stood in the same room and acted it out together. Was that Kevin Conroy and Mark Hamill? It was. So they were actually in the sound booth together? Yeah, they were in the same room together while they did it, so they could actually play off of each other. So that's why I like those performances so much. Yep. Because most of the time, it's you're in a sound booth all by yourself. Yep, you're, you're giving your lines, you're kind of giving some direction, and you do it, and you don't know what else is happening, whereas they would actually get together and do it as a group. Awesome. I did not know that. I knew I liked those animated shows when the Joker was in them. I did not know that that was why those were so good. Yeah, another, another little bit for me is I always wanted to do voice acting work. I've never been able to actually do it, but I've looked into it enough times and I've, I've seen little pieces and, and followed some people that do voice acting, and that's one of the things that they talk about. Possible foreshadowing. If there is an episode that focuses on the Joker, someone might be doing a Joker voice in our intro. <laughs> One of the other approaches, and we we talked back and forth about this for a while, is what happens when only one of us has either seen something or is interested in seeing something. Sometimes that will spawn some individual, shorter episodes where we just take on a particular topic or show or movie by ourselves. But other times we'll just do more of an interview format. Like when we get to Star Trek, I don't think Mike's going to be all that interested in Star Trek, so he might take on more of an interviewer role and try to ask me, why? <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've seen bits and pieces of Star Trek. I always found it to be very boring, but I've always been interested because so many people love Star Trek, so I would love to ask you questions about it, and maybe I could learn to love it. It depends. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Sometimes it is like Star Talk. Not Star Trek, because it seems like it's a very dialogue-heavy show. Not that there's not action in it, but some people do find Star Trek boring. I love the Star Talk podcast. Yes, Star Talk, yes, Star Talk, Neil deGrasse Tyson, awesome podcast. So yeah, I was not trying to nag on Neil deGrasse Tyson. That <laughs> L- is an listen awesome- to that one later, though. Yeah, so yeah, listen to that later. That is an awesome, keep looking up. As Neil says on that show, that is an awesome podcast. So yeah, but yeah, we'll do more of an interview thing where we'll maybe have Mike ask me some questions and help me. Instead of making Mike, because again, there's just so many, there's lots of television series that you would have to watch episodes of or even movies. We might adopt an interview format. Also, Mike is much, much more deep into comic book lore than I am. So when we get to some comic book characters or some animated shows, especially in the DC Extended Universe, they have much better animated movies. We might adopt more of uh, me asking questions. I might only be slightly familiar with characters like Wolverine or Batman and have me interview Mike. And along with that, we, we also may do individual episodes on our own. Maybe talking about a specific actor or director, maybe a specific storyline or something like that where maybe the interview process wouldn't really work too well. So we may just kind of do a deep dive on why we love something in particular. Mike will be recording a love letter to Kristen Bell. I will. She'll never hear it. But you will right now. (laughs) 
Hello, I am Mike Hall, flying solo, fanboy favorite. Today I'm going to talk about my current number one celebrity crush, the amazing, the multi-talented, and the stunning Kristen Bell. Kristen Bell is primarily an actress who, in my opinion, most closely embodies perfection. I first found Kristen Bell on the show Heroes in the second and third seasons around 2007-2008. Now, I absolutely loved her in that show. I thought she was gorgeous. I thought she was probably extremely talented, although I had nothing to compare her to because I hadn't seen her in anything else. So I really wanted to see her in more things. But around that time, I was just finishing up college. I was super busy. I wasn't really into pop culture as much as I am now or as much as I had been in the past simply because I just couldn't. I didn't have the time. I didn't have the resources. I didn't have cable or anything like that. The internet wasn't quite what it is now, so stuff wasn't as easy to find. So then after that, I kind of dropped off for a couple of years. And I kind of forgot who she was for a little bit, to be honest. Uh, I'm not exactly proud of saying that, but it happened. So fast forward a little bit, and around 2013 when Frozen came out, at that time I had a girlfriend who had a, a little daughter. She was so excited to see it, so we saw it. And without knowing anything about that film, I actually fell in love with her character. Uh, love's a little strong word for it, but I, I really, really liked the voice and there there are a few people that do voice acting that I hear the voice and because it's a voice I, I'm really drawn to it and then I go look them up and realize oh hey that's a person that I really connected to and I really like a voice actress Tara Strong same thing like even when she's doing a voice that's completely different than anything else she's done I hear it I love it I look it up and sure enough it's her so, long story short, going back to that, I, I've had multiple arguments and I had for years about which was the best song in Frozen. Everybody always wants to talk about Let It Go, with good reason, it's a great song, but I always felt Do You Want to Build a Snowman was a much better song. I thought it was better written, I thought it sounded better, the vocals were much cleaner and didn't rely on the power to be good. It was very crisp voice, very, very clear. And I thought that song had the most emotional range and feeling. So after having that argument for a long time, I decided, you know what, I'm going to look up who this voice belongs to. And sure enough, it was Kristen Bell, and I was in love. That was pretty much the drop point. I'm like, oh, okay. So she was fantastic in Heroes, and she has this amazing singing voice, which if you know anything about me, I'm big on voices. I've always been a big fan of voices. So after that, I started looking up what else she'd been in. Looking, going through her list, I, I can tell by the names of it, a lot of the movies that she has been in just aren't really in my fandom, but many of them are. And one of the first things I noticed was, hey, she was in Fanboys. I decided to go watch it again. And holy shirt, that was her, and she was amazing. Next on the list that I, that I connected to was Reefer Madness, the, the movie musical. And I know I'd seen it before, and I knew I kind of liked it. I found it entertaining, but I went and watched it again, and again... She is amazing. My girlfriend at the time, same one I mentioned before, showed me Forgetting Sarah Marshall. I hadn't seen it. Again, I was behind on a lot of stuff. And again, amazing. Then I started looking at the voice work she'd done. Besides Frozen, Assassin's Creed. One of my top favorite video game series. 
Not only was she in it, but she played the character whose voice, again, I was extremely attracted to. I just loved that voice. The Simpsons. I don't think you are allowed to be a celebrity without being in The Simpsons. Robot Chicken. If she was in Robot Chicken, she had to be funny, right? I mean, that's just the way that goes. And then I started seeing her in commercials everywhere. Now, if you've been around in the last few years, she's in a lot of commercials. And she's always very, very good in them. Holy shirt, she is everywhere. I thought maybe, maybe I should follow her a little more closely. Follow her Instagram. See what she's like as a person. I really, really liked her as an actress at this point. I really, really liked her voice. She has an amazing voice. What's she like as a person? Because I don't, I don't throw out terms like celebrity crush on a whim. I want to be attracted to them as a person as well. And what the fork? She's an amazing person as well. Genuinely kind. She's actually thoughtful and intelligent. Seriously, this woman is perfect. Uh, I mean, everything about her. She loves animals. She's always doing things to help animals. I remember there was a week or two, uh, maybe a little bit longer on Instagram, where she was showing uh, she doesn't even really like cats, but there were some abandoned cats that she was taking care of because she just couldn't not take care of them because they're living beings and she cares. Then The Good Place. If you have not seen The Good Place, stop listening to this right now. Go watch The Good Place. Whatever you have to do, just get it done. That is one of the best shows that has ever been made. There will be an episode about The Good Place. I got so enamored with her at this point. I decided, you know what? I, I need to see her in more, more things she's been in. She is fantastic. What else will I be interested in that she might be in? And right about then... She posted up the news about Veronica Mars. Now, I was not familiar with Veronica Mars. I had heard of it, but I'd never actually seen it. I just assumed that it was something for teenage girls, one of those types of shows that just wouldn't really connect to me being, you know, a 30-some-year-old man. I use man loosely. But I decided, you know what, I, this has a very, very strong fan base. She is amazing. I'm going to give it a chance, see what it's all about. So I started watching Veronica Mars. I'm about halfway through the second season. And you know what? That show might as well just be called Kristen Bell Shows Off because she is amazing in it. She, she plays a character that often has to play other characters. And she just flows and she transitions so smoothly, perfectly. She becomes those characters. And everything that I've seen her in, she is the character. And that's really great acting. If you can if you see an actor in something and you can't tell if that's their personality or them acting and then you watch them in something else and there's a completely different character and you still can't tell, that is a sign of a fantastic actor and she is a fantastic actor. Then you see her in other things, talk shows like Ellen. She's in those a lot. She visits those. She's always so entertaining and, and so captivating. And uh, late night shows she's on. I mean, she's always hilarious and, and always fantastic to watch. But you know what? All of this to go into saying I'm not just a fan of her acting. I'm not just a fan of her singing. And I'm not just in love with her looks. I love Kristen Bell as a person as well. She, to me, seems to be in a complete package very, very elite. 
she's involved with and, and often promotes several charities. Um, she's very, very passionate about helping people, not just helping people, helping animals, helping living beings. She genuinely cares. She genuinely tries and she pushes really, really hard to try to make the world a better place. Along with that, she's also very open about her flaws. I've seen many times on Instagram where she'll, she'll show pictures of herself without makeup, without filters, and show, put herself out there. This is what I look like with, without makeup. This is what I look like naturally. And then she'll post a picture after an hour, two hours, whatever it is, after all of the professional makeup and hair and everything. And she'll post those pictures side by side to show this is natural. This is not natural. She still looks amazing either way, but I really like that she go, takes that extra step to show, hey, real life is not what you normally see. She also openly discusses her uh, battles with mental health. Her and her husband, Dax Shepard, who I am extremely jealous of, but also a fan of, they openly discuss their marriage problems, that they've had problems, they go through therapy. They're a very, very strong couple because they have to work at becoming a strong couple and they're very open about discussing that and having those conversations. Really, Kristen Bell, to me, again, is just almost the embodiment of perfection. She is fantastic. She, she's so multi-talented and just amazing at everything that she does. She's a genuinely caring, kind person. You couldn't really ask for anything more in a person. And to me, that is why Kristen Bell is a fanboy favorite. The other aspect of our reviews that we should explain is we talked about this for a while too. Is what do we actually come up with for a rating system? Are we going to do like certain number of stars out of five, up to 100% letter grades or something like that? Nope. Mike came up with an interesting idea of a metaphorical rating system. Why don't we explain what that means, Mike? As we're doing Solo with Star Wars, or we're prepping for it, and I'm trying to figure out how do I rate it? What do I do? And I started trying to think about, okay, what are other Star Wars-related thing? Could I relate to it to give it? And I said, you know what? There was a character throughout the Star Wars universe that I feel like embodied what this movie was. And so that's where I came up with this metaphorical system where we would take something from the lore, something from whatever it is we're reviewing, and equate how we felt about that movie to that specific character or thing. Sometimes it's either a character or it's some aspect of the movie. Like for me, I chose one of the storytelling elements of Solo as the meaning behind my metaphorical rating. So here, I'll give you a quick idea of what we're talking about, as well as a sneak peek of our next episode. Here's a short clip explaining our metaphorical rating for Solo, A Star Wars Story. Solo, a Star Wars story. These movies, if you go into them expecting them to be like the original trilogy and give you the same feeling as the original trilogy, you're just destined to be disappointed. I came into this movie with low expectations. I was just hoping for something enjoyable that answered a lot of the questions that a lot of fans had. How did Han meet Chewbacca? How did uh, he meet Lando? How did he get the Millennium Falcon? What is a Kessel Run and why is it measured in parsecs? I was really excited to see how they would do it and to see it on the big screen and see it all pieced together. 
I also came into this understanding that I don't think it would be possible to do this story in a way that's going to make all of the fans happy. And overall, I enjoyed it. My measurement of whether or not I like a movie is, am I angry at the end of it or am I smiling at the end of it? And I was smiling at the end of this one. Overall, I give it a solid R2-D2. It was chaotic. It didn't always make sense, but it was mostly reliable. Kept the story going. I'm a huge Star Wars nerd. I probably brought too much of that with me when I went to see this movie. And oddly enough, for the first Star Wars movie that never included the famous line, I have a bad feeling about this. I have lots of bad feelings about this movie. Not only do I not think it's a good Star Wars movie, I think it's also just a bad movie. My hate is strong with this one. I give this movie negative 12 parsecs. This took us in the complete wrong direction. I wanted a better story. Too much was wrong with the story. Plot holes, bad storytelling. I think the Kessel Run and trying to explain that whole parsec problem became the core part of the script that they wove a story around. And they didn't do a very good job with it. And I would argue if if you can't tell a better Han Solo story, just don't tell one at all. As we said earlier, reviews will probably make up the bulk of the largest content on the podcast. But we do have some other segments that will sometimes just be short pieces included within an episode. Or may become recurring segments that appear in many of our episodes. The next two segments are examples of that. The second one is news and industry trends, which kind of explains itself. But before that, the first segment is going to be an example of something we came up to address the fact that sometimes there's a few things that need to be explained. It might be a piece of terminology that is used in reviews or when discussing a movie, TV show, or pop culture. Or maybe it's some type of Easter egg or other aspect of something that we're watching that wasn't clearly explained as part of the script or story. So we decided to come up with the following segment to give us time to address things like that. And now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, What Does That Mean? Fridging. No, it's not another fracking way to say the F word on TV. Fridging is a storytelling technique where a supporting character is injured, abused, raped, or killed in order to motivate a leading character to take action, seek vengeance, or otherwise propel their story arc. It is used disproportionately on female characters to provide so-called character development for male characters. The origin of the term is actually from Women in Refrigerators, a term coined by Gail Simone in 1999 discussing its frequent use in comic book storytelling. In fact, it originates in a Green Lantern issue where the character Alex DeWitt is violently murdered and then stuffed into a refrigerator for Kyle Rayner, the Green Lantern, to later find. And while it originated as a comic book storytelling trope, it comes up quite frequently in movies and TV shows. And again, it happens disproportionately or almost exclusively to female characters. Some recent examples include Vanessa in Deadpool 2, Gamora 
in Avengers Infinity War, The Black Widow in Avengers Endgame, Val in Solo, A Star Wars Story, Masandi in Game of Thrones, and Robin in the recent Amazon Prime series, The Boys. This is a tiresome trope that needs to go away. So writers out there, if fridging is the best that you can come up with for a storytelling technique, then I recommend you go fridge yourself. News and industry trends. Not so much news anymore, although it's still being talked about. The recent split between Disney and... Mommy and Daddy are fighting. Mommy and Daddy are fighting, and Spidey is leaving the neighborhood. Maybe he'll get emancipated. <laughs> Spider-Man, Emancipated Minor, the next Sony movie. <laughs> so can you give us a bit of a... Because I've heard a lot about this. At the time of this recording, it's probably been news for almost a month, maybe a couple of weeks. We're recording this in early September. This news broke a few, at least a few weeks ago mm-hmm. during the Disney D23 Expo. I've also heard it explained too much from only one side or the other. So can you give us a little bit of a breakdown of what's this whole Spidey's leaving the MCU? What's that all about? So from what I've been able to understand was Spidey basically leased to Marvel and Disney. And the deal was Marvel and Disney do all the production costs and then they get 5% of the revenue of anything Spidey related, but then they also get all the merchandising rights. So that's where they were making all the money off Spider-Man is from the merchandising rights. As they were negotiating, they wanted Sony to put up 50% of the production costs, and then they would also share 50% of the revenue. I'm not sure about the merchandising after that, but all that really got reported was Marvel wants 50% of the revenues they're being greedy. Tony yeah. says no. Yeah, that was almost the immediate response that I was seeing, that people were complaining that Marvel was being greedy. But I didn't hear a lot of people explaining that what, what the 50% was about and what it was like before. So that was misrepresented, at least the first few times that I saw it, that people weren't explaining that Marvel wasn't trying to be greedy. They wanted to share of both the cost of production as well as share in the revenue. Which, yeah. when you say it from that perspective, it seems, let, let's not turn this around and make Sony the villain. Is it really Sony's fault, or what What do you think was the problem here? Not necessarily. I think it is, if you calculate the numbers, the way it was set up, I think Marvel would have made more money that way, and Sony would have made less money that way. And so that was kind of the fight of Marvel and Disney saying, hey, it'd be more fair this way. And Sony saying, well, then it's not really worth it to us because we're not going to make as much when we can just do it all ourselves and take all of the profits. So that was kind of their negotiations. And a lot of people are saying now that negotiations aren't over, even though everybody's saying it's over, uh, a lot of the fans are saying maybe this is just a public fight and they're waiting to get public opinion to figure out what to do. But also another thing that they're thinking too might be part of it is, as you're probably familiar, is they're building a Spider-Man universe in Sony that's not related to the MCU. Venom, Venom 2 is coming out, they're making a Morbius movie, and so freeing up Spider-Man from the MCU means he can get involved in that universe. Well, that's the angle that I really didn't like. The other thing that I saw a lot of people jumping on board is not only were they complaining that Marvel was being greedy, they were also, there was even, I think, a campaign on Twitter for a while of Save Spidey from Sony. 
some fans were trying to argue that Sony is incapable of making a good Spider-Man movie, which I was very confused by this line of reasoning because not only did I greatly enjoy the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movies, especially Spider-Man 2, which was Sony and had nothing to do with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I also thought that Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse which came out last year, is very close, as we said before, a very close number two for me behind Spider-Man 2. That's also something that was a Sony movie. Yeah, I mean, they've made two very good Spider-Man movies, and only two. Yes, I'm not saying that they haven't made bad Spider-Man movies, but the, the, the idea that they can't make a good Spider-Man movie on their own, I didn't buy. And the other thing that came to mind for me is, I love Spider-Man as we established earlier, and I do like Spider-Man as he was portrayed in the MCU. But I kind of started to get a little bit tired of, it kind of turned him into Spider-Iron Man. Yeah. And the fancy suits and all the high-tech stuff, it seemed a little bit less like the Spider-Man I wanted to see. Yeah, so, yeah I can see that. I, I don't argue that at all. I also would like to kind of caveat, too, that the Spider-Man movies that Sony made that I disliked. Part of that is also because they just hadn't quite figured out how to make a live action comic book movie yet. So the parts that I didn't like about a lot of those movies, like for instance, the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man movie, I liked it, but I didn't like it. The big thing that takes me out of it that makes me not enjoy it was simply the costuming of Green Goblin. Otherwise, I loved that movie, but that just took me out of it enough to I'm like, eh, it's hard to watch for me. Um, the third one was never made. It was bad. There were, there were aspects of it that I enjoyed, but the thing I always think of is Spider-Man 2, my favorite one, that was made 15 years ago. It was so good. It was so good. I mean, at the time, like you said, there were a lot of people trying to figure out how do you make a live-action superhero movie based on a comic book. So there was a lot of not-so-good attempts, and Sony was not the only one guilty of that. But they still did a really good job with, with some they of did. those movies. They very much did. And actually, even the third one that doesn't exist. <laughs> Sandman and that was fantastic. Yes, like I said, there are aspects of that movie I did enjoy. As a whole, it had a yeah. lot of problems. Goblin Jr. was really, really good. There was some character, Topher Grace was in it. And it's, I don't know, there's some black thing involved. <laughs> I don't really know what that was. Mike likes Venom. He did not like Topher Grace as Venom. You know, that's often when they announce who's playing what characters and everybody's all upset about Robert Pattinson being Batman. I can sit back and go, you know what? I'll wait and see it. That, that, that's possible. He may do a good job. When they announced Topher Grace as Eddie Brock, I went, what the fuck are they thinking? And I like Topher Grace. But he is not an Eddie Brock. I had the exact same reaction. I also liked Topher Grace as an actor, but I was like, wow, that is a horrible piece of casting. Yeah. He was better than expected only because I expected him to be absolutely horrible, but it was still a very bad Eddie Brock Venom. He did as well as he could with what was there. Yeah. But, I mean, just, just the sheer fact that he's not the size he would need to be. Yeah. I mean, th there's little things like that. that like, yeah, sometimes you can fudge it. But there's things that you can't fudge. And, and that's a big thing about being a nerd and watching nerd movies 
if you're a comic book nerd and you're watching these, is we're fine as long as the character is the way the character is supposed to be. Right. And when you get the character that wrong, especially beloved character, no, it's not going to work. Definitely not going to work. So, yeah, go back, going back to my point again, I, I still do love Spidey in the MCU. But I have to say, I have to admit, I don't really think that I'm sad to see him go. I liked Far From Home, but again, it seemed like more of a Avengers post-game show than it was a Spider-Man movie. And again, the whole Spider-Iron Man thing was starting to annoy me. And I think I would really like to see us get back to back to basics with a pure Spider-Man story and not all the heavy tech. I mean... Peter Parker, still very scientific. Obviously, he makes the web shooters. It's not like there's no tech involved at all. But the Iron Man-like Spidey suit, I, I actually don't really like that all that much. You know, they've explored that. He's had different suits, and he've had, he's had suits like that. But being Spider-Man, he always liked to go back to the standard spandex. And what really keeps me hopeful is not only can they take it in another direction away from, from that, but Tom Holland staying the character. Yes, and that, that just makes me hopeful. I can watch that dude be Spider-Man all day. Yes. I don't know when they're going to make it, but I actually, I mean, some people are even going, I, I, I don't understand. I understand people are very, when you love a fandom, you get very attached to things. But I, the part I don't understand is people saying, oh, we're going to boycott the next Spider-Man movie because it's out of the MCU. It's like, I love Spider-Man. I'm going to go see it. Yeah. It's art. I mean, it's I, not life. Like I said before, I didn't like the casting of Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man. I still went and saw his Spider-Man movies because I love Spider-Man. I'm, I'm going to go see. And he did great as Spider-Man. Yes. He, he, I, I, I didn't give him enough credit for how well he did as Spider-Man. Didn't do a good job as Peter Parker. But still, I saw those movies. There's no way I'm not going to see a Spider-Man movie. Right. I'm definitely going to see Tom Holland's next Spider-Man movie. Even if they drove it into the ground like another series, X-Men. But still keep going to see it because, hey, curiosity, it's it can't be as bad as the last one, right? Yeah, I, I X-Men is a whole other, <laughs> right? a whole other right? argument, a whole other episode. It's like for a series that I loved so much as a comic and a animated series and cartoon series, they have done very little well with X-Men as live action. And it's been, it's so disappointing to me because I, so many of those characters I love so much. And so much of it has just not been done well. It's so difficult to do. I, I, yeah, I, I do. I do definitely admit that it is very difficult to do. But yeah, I've been much more disappointed with that. So yeah, definitely going to see Spider-Man. But on somewhat of a related note, and I don't know if this is a new industry trend or if this is Marvel trying to make as much money as they can this summer, but it's happened, and maybe it's happened with other movies and I just haven't noticed, but both Avengers Endgame and Spider-Man Far From Home had a second theatrical release in the same year with extended scenes. I'm using air quotes again. We make the DVD Blu-ray extras into a movie now? Yeah, I you know I went and saw the Endgame one. I haven't seen the Far From Home. I, I want to. Um, why? Why? So you you saw Endgame and you want to see Far From Home? Why? Because I was going to go see it in the theater again anyway. <laughs> so why not see the extras? So you saw Avengers Endgame. Was it actually any better? Was it worth seeing? 
Uh, in that one, actually, it was just clips at the end. It, it literally was just special features of the Blu-ray. So, like, was it like post-credits? Yeah. So, there was nothing like in the middle. The actual movie itself nothing. was exactly the same. Yep. And it's just like post-credits, they show you some extra Some additional stuff, yeah. And I'm not sure. I, From what I've heard, all they're adding in Far From Home was an additional fight scene that was in the trailer. So, the full scene for that. And I, I actually wonder if maybe that was just because so many people were like, hey, this was in the trailer. It wasn't in the movie. I want to see it. They put it out so people can actually see it in the theater. Because it's a whole different experience seeing it in the theater than it is watching it at home. I mostly think they're just trying to milk the box office for money. It, has it just been Marvel? I mean, those are the two movies that I noticed. I, I don't know. Maybe other movies have done this. I don't, I haven't. Usually re-releases are like years afterwards. That's what I mean. It's like yeah. I've seen other movies get re-released in Brett Brockley Theater, but I mean, both of these movies were just barely out of the theater, and then they bring them back in the theater yeah. with these in the same year. So yeah, I was very confused by that. And I, I, I really, if it's a trend, it's a trend I don't want to see continue. <laughs> but again, I can just say I, I just won't go see it. So I mean, it's right. not like it's if enough people thing. don't go see it, they won't do it anymore. And maybe they're just, maybe they're testing the waters on that. So who knows? That there, is there was an ongoing joke when Endgame did their re-release when they were so close to beating that box office record, and everybody's going, "Well, Avatar re-released too, and that's why their box office is so high." I'm like, well, yeah, but they did it years after. They didn't just tack it on to the end of the run just to get those extra numbers to win, and they did. So yeah, if that's trends, we won. <laughs> With a giant asterisk next to it. I hope that that is not a trend that we see continue. Oftentimes in our discussions, we we tend to focus a lot or always come back to comic book movies and Star Wars because that's a strong basis of our fandom. It's what we love the most, so that's what we compare a lot of things to. But that's not the only thing we love. I know for me, I'm I'm also a big Jim Carrey fan. I love comedies in general. I love action movies like The Expendables. I love those <laughs> movies. They are fantastically horrible. Yes. So we have other interests. We're not just fanboys and haters of comic book movies and of Star Wars. We've talked a lot about both of those. And if you take a look at our first few episodes after this that come out, yeah, they probably will be Star Wars and superhero related. But we will talk about other things. In part, the Star Wars and superhero is where our fandoms overlap the most. Yeah. We have a lot of uh, things that we like separately, but we overlap the most there. Plus, also, it's just the reality of we're launching our podcast in September of 2019 Three months before Rise of Skywalker hits the theaters, the ninth and final movie in the great Star Wars Skywalker saga. So it's on our minds. And obviously, earlier this year, Mike's favorite movie of all time, Avengers Endgame, came out. So obviously, we're still thinking about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you're going to see a lot of content. Not to mention Comic-Con just happened where they made a lot of announcements. D23 just happened where they made a lot of a lot of announcements like Mandalorian, Kenobi. Remember, the Force will be with you. Always. Again, yes, we do love our Star Wars. So yeah, Mandalorian and Kenobi and also other uh, superheroes like She-Hulk and Ms. Marvel. They're gonna make She-Hulk and Moon Knight! 
So yeah, we are very excited about all of the additional comic book superhero movies. But yeah, we are interested in other topics. I do like a lot of science fiction, so I will talk about that a lot. But I also like comedies as well, and dramas, and some criminal procedurals, and psychological thrillers. So we will get to other topics. So we just ask for your patience. If you're not in the Star Wars or superhero movies, that's okay. It's okay not to be. But don't write us off as that's the only thing that these guys talk about. And we may even jump into other things like video games. I may even do some episodes on music. We're not only fanboys of TV and movies. We are fanboys and haters of everything pop culture. We really hope that you have enjoyed this first episode of Fanboy and the Hater. And we hope that you tune in and listen to more of our episodes. We would be honored if you would join us. It is your destiny. In closing, I'd like to say thank you to the Twitter community, especially fellow podcasters, bloggers, and reviewers in the movies, TV, and pop culture space. It's been real fun getting to virtually know many of you over the last few months as we've been working to launch our podcast, and we have greatly appreciated the interactions, feedback, and support. You're all awesome. Are you a geek looking for a TV-centric podcast? Give the Bingeables podcast a try. That's B-I-N-G-E-A-B-L-E-S. Co-hosts and partners in crime, Chin Lin and Isaac, are geeks who love to watch TV and recommend the Bingeable ones. There's so many shows out there, sometimes you need a little hand in trying to figure out what to watch next. The Bingeables podcast dives deep into the episodes of shows like Disenchantment, Firefly, and many more. Visit their website, geekgals.co, that's G-E-E-K-G-A-L-S dot C-O, and stick around on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and all your top podcast platforms for the next show of the binge. And follow them on Twitter at BingeablesPod to engage in the conversation. Thank you for listening to The Fanboy and the Hater. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star rating. If you disliked anything, please reach out to us and let us know how we can improve. Follow us on Twitter at fanboyandhater. Email us at thefanboyandthehater at gmail.com. Visit our website, fanboyandhater.podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. Our episodes are available on iTunes, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also access our episodes on your mobile device by downloading the free Podbean mobile app for iOS and Android. Mm-hmm.